0: Log Talk Radio.
1: This is Abayomi Azikawe and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African <laughs> Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Wednesday, uh, November twenty second, uh, 2023. We are broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast. Later on, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire reports. We'll feature dispatches on the decision by the South African Parliament to break diplomatic relations between Pretoria and Tel Aviv. The United States has bombed areas in Iraq purportedly in retaliation for attacks on Pentagon bases by resistance forces. A resistance movement in Gaza says two hostages have died due to the delay uh, by the Israeli regime over several weeks. And the Democratic uh, People's Republic of Korea has successfully launched another satellite. In the second and third hours, we listen to a panel discussion on recent developments in Palestine. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude. Uh, We'll continue our Um Kaltoum and her orchestra film festival. This uh, opera is entitled Men Ajil Anak. Let's listen in.
2: And will turn back لا تسلني عن أمان. وحينا لا تقل اين لا تحمل مر نكرانك
1: Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, the Egyptian classical music uh, with the voice and orchestra of Umkaltum, and uh, of course uh, that uh, track uh, was entitled "Men Al Alk," and uh, of course uh, we are here at the Pan African Journal special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Wednesday, November twenty second, twenty twenty three. We are broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again uh, to another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. Our lead story uh, deals with uh, the South African Parliament's vote in favor of closing uh, the Israeli embassy in rejection of the brutal war waged by the Israeli occupation on Gaza. The South African parliament has voted in favor of closing the Israeli embassy, expelling the Israeli ambassador and cutting diplomatic ties with the Israeli occupation in rejection of the brutal war waged by the occupation of uh, Gaza. Uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa's government will decide on whether to implement it or not. The motion was passed uh, yesterday with 248 votes in favor and 91 against. The motion, which was introduced by the left-wing opposition party economic freedom fighters, was backed uh, by the ruling ANC and opposed by members of the centrist party, the white majority democratic alliance, which is considered pro-Israeli. In fact, it is uh, pro-Israeli. Previously, uh, Ramaphosa said his country believes committing war crimes and genocide in the Gaza Strip. The vote comes after the Israeli Foreign Ministry announced that it was has recalled uh, its ambassador to South Africa for consultation in response to the, quote, latest statement from South Africa, unquote, South Africa's ruling African National Congress ANC party declared its endorsement of a parliamentary motion advocating for the closure of the israeli embassy in south africa south africa highly critical of the aggression in gaza against the palestinian resistance has withdrawn its diplomats from israel Its long-standing support for palestinians uh, traces back to the days of uh, former president nelson mandela drawing parallels between their struggle and south africa's fight against apartheid however israel rejects this comparison the african national congress will agree to a parliamentary motion which calls upon the government to close the Israeli embassy in South Africa and suspend all diplomatic relations with Israel until Israel agrees to a ceasefire, the ANC said in a statement. The move comes amid the Israeli-led genocide in Gaza, with the ANC and senior officials strongly criticizing the Israeli actions and calling for an investigation by the International Criminal Court into war crimes. In other news, The CENTCOM uh, confirms it has attacked two sites in Iraq uh, after the Iraqi resistance hit its occupation bases in Syria and Iraq. The United States has carried out two strikes against two facilities in Iraq, responding to the Iraqis' resistance targeting of U.S. military bases in Syria and Iraq, the U.S. Central Command CENTCOM said uh, earlier today. On the morning of November 22nd in Iraq, the U.S. Central Command forces conducted discrete precision strikes against two facilities in Iraq. Uh, CENTCOM confirmed uh, this in a statement. The strikes were in direct response to the attacks against U.S. and coalition forces by Iran and Iran-backed groups, including the one in Iraq on November 21, which involved use of close-range ballistic missiles. The statement indicated the United States military conducted the attacks via heavily armed Lockheed AC-130 gunship. You're listening to the Pan-African NewsWire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, uh, the Al-Quds Brigade announced uh, its readiness earlier to release Hana Katsir on humanitarian and health grounds. Abu Hamza, the spokesperson for the Al-Quds Brigades, the military wing of the Palestinian resistance jihad movement announced the death of an Israeli captive, Hana Katsia, held by the resistance group, asserting that the delay tactics of the Israeli occupation were the cause of her death. In a statement released through his official channel on Telegram, Abu Hamza announced her death, stressing that the entity bears full responsibility for this incident. He further stressed that the Israeli occupation is responsible for the lives of Israeli captives, especially in light of the brutal and relentless bombing on every inch of the Gaza Strip, unquote. Earlier this month, the Al-Quds brigades expressed its willingness to release uh, Katsir and another captive, Yagil Yaqub, on humanitarian and health grounds, but the entity disregarded the offer. Kassir even gave a recorded statement holding Benjamin Netanyahu responsible for the captives' lives. The Secretary General of the Islamic Jihad Movement, Ziad al-Nakhala, had revealed earlier that the movement holds more than 30 captives. And finally, uh, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, space authorities, have reported that the launch vehicle was placed in a malian one satellite into orbit. The Democratic People's Republic of Korea leader uh, Kim Jong-un witnessed the blast off and then proceeded to congratulate the scientists and technicians behind the mission. The United States was quick to condemn the launch as a, quote, brazen violation, unquote, of UN sanctions and said it could destabilize the region. South Africa also reacted by saying it would resume surveillance operations along the border with the DPRK that had been suspended in 2018. Upon a Seoul Pyongyang agreement to reduce military tensions this was reported by the Yonhap news agency the Korean Central News Agency said after this mission that the launch of reconnaissance satellite is a legitimate right of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea for strengthening its self-defensive capabilities as the country confronts what it considers threats from South Korea and the United States Seoul had been saying for weeks that the Pyongyang government was in the final stages of preparation to launch another surveillance satellite, warning it would take necessary measures if it went ahead. uh Pyongyang's May attempt uh, failed due to the abnormal startup of its second-stage engine, and the August bid was due to an error in the emergency blasting system during the third-stage flight, according to Pyongyang state media. At that time period, yesterday as the launch came hours before its time window, notification seemed to underscore two things: Pyongyang's confidence and success, and intention to maximize surprise factors to the outside world. Choi Ji-il, a professor of military studies at Shang-Chi University, told Asian France Press. For that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African NewsWire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we would like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since that time period, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go uh, to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for Wednesday, November 22nd, 2023, go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. the family stone under the title of little sister uh, with the track entitled somebody's watching you from 1970 and this is the pan-african journal special worldwide radio broadcast for wednesday november 22nd 2023 and we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown detroit right now we want to move into the electronic intifada panel discussion for day 45 of the siege upon Gaza uh, by the Israeli Defense Forces, backed up by uh, the United States Department of Defense, the Pentagon, and other NATO countries. Let's listen uh, to uh, this report.
0: To the Electronic Intifada's live stream for Monday, November 20th, I'm Nora Barrows Friedman, Associate Editor of the Electronic Intifada, along with my colleagues, John Elmer, and our Executive Director, Ali Abunima. Asa Wood's family is traveling today Uh, We have a very full show for you and a lot of updates from the last few days across Palestine, so please stay tuned. Before we go to our first guest, uh, Ali, let's hear your opening remarks.
3: Hi, Nora. Even the most cursory scan of the news any day, any hour for the last 45 days reveals horrors from Gaza, each of which by itself would once have made global headlines. Today, for example, it is reported that at least 12 people have been killed by Israeli shelling of the Indonesian hospital, the last functioning hospital in northern Gaza. Israel is laying siege to the hospital where once again, hundreds of patients, medical staff and displaced people are trapped, as it has done at other hospitals in recent days. In two separate attacks reported on Saturday in Jabalia refugee camp, Israel bombed two residential buildings, killing 50 and 32 people, respectively, according to the UN. We no longer even know the exact death toll because of the collapse of communications and services in Gaza. But as the UN notes, the last official count as of November 10, 10 days ago, was over 11,000 people killed in Gaza. The human rights group Euromed estimates that the true death toll is closer to 20,000, with thousands of people missing under the rubble with little hope of survival. This would mean that Israel has now exterminated 1% of the population of Gaza in just 40 days. What passes for good news these days is that 28 surviving premature babies from Al Shifa Hospital have arrived in Egypt. Three babies remain at the Emirati Hospital in Gaza. All the surviving babies are fighting serious infections and continue to need health care, according to a World Health Organization official. Five of the babies had died in previous days due to the cutoff of electricity and fuel by Israel, according to the UN. And on Sunday, the UN reported that in the previous 24 hours, Israeli attacks had killed six journalists, bringing to almost 50 the number of Palestinian journalists uh, killed since the launch of Israel's genocide. In the West Bank, it's hard to keep up with the daily raids on towns and refugee camps and the mounting toll of death and destruction there. Israel is adept at turning the exceptional, the unthinkable, into the normal. I was struck by the comments of Ibrahim Frehat, an associate professor at the Doha Institute. He said, we started with the Al-Ahli Baptist Hospital. It was bombed. There was an outcry over this and Israel denied it. But then there was another attack and it was received with no reaction from the international community because they got used to it. Now Israel is bombing hospitals and not even giving an explanation, Frehat said. He observed that the same pattern holds with Israel's attacks on schools. He says the first school attack was also received with international condemnation. But then on Saturday, Israel bombed two schools in northern Gaza, Al-Fakhura, and another one in Telizatar. Azatar. Frihat observed even Israel is not claiming that uh, there are Hamas fighters hiding there and is giving no explanation whatsoever. Israel pushes as far as it thinks it can go, and when it receives no reaction, it pushes further. How much further will it go in this genocide? How much further does Israel want to go? Well, here's one indication. In the Jerusalem Post on November 19th, Israel's intelligence minister, Gila Gamliel, wrote an op-ed with the upbeat-sounding headline victory is an opportunity for Israel in the midst of crisis. This is the same intelligence ministry that authored the secret document, which leaked a few weeks ago, planning for the ethnic cleansing of Gaza's population to Egypt under the guise of humanitarian intervention. Now Gamliel is making this proposal in the open. Gamliel writes, Quote, instead of funneling money to rebuild Gaza or to the failed UNRWA the international community can assist in the costs of resettlement, helping the people of Gaza build new lives in their new host countries. End quote. Ethnic cleansing never sounded so friendly. And there's another article also published on November 19th in Yedi'ot Ahronot, one of Israel's leading newspapers. It's by Giora Island, a senior research associate at the Institute for National Security Studies, a retired Israeli major general and former head of the Israeli National Security Council. Here's what Island writes. The way to win the war faster and at a lower cost for us requires a system collapse on the other side and not the mere killing of more Hamas fighters. The international community warns us of a humanitarian disaster in Gaza and of severe epidemics. We must not shy away from this, as difficult as that may be. After all, severe epidemics in the south of the Gaza Strip will bring victory closer and reduce casualties among IDF soldiers. And no, this is not about cruelty for cruelty's sake, since we don't support the suffering of the other sides as a goal but as a means, end quote. As you can see, Israeli leaders are capable of rationalizing literally anything while at the same time shamelessly describing themselves as the light and the Palestinians, they are busy exterminating as the darkness. And they are joined in this by most politicians in the West. If this is not genocide, the word has no meaning. But imagine if you could stop a genocide with a single act. Would you do it? Of course you would. That's what we're all taught to believe, that each of us is a good person who, if they had the chance to go back in history and do the one thing that could have stopped the past Holocaust, of course we would do it. I want to read you something that people have been sharing on social media in recent days. Perhaps you have seen it. It's an excerpt from a 2014 book called The Reagan Paradox by Lou Cannon. It recounts a well-known episode during Israel's 1982 invasion of Lebanon and siege of Beirut. Here's what Cannon writes. Reagan, who had considered Israel a trustworthy ally, was disgusted with what was happening in Lebanon. Israel's 10-week siege culminated with its planes bombing West Beirut for 11 consecutive hours on August 12th. At the suggestion of White House Deputy Chief of Staff Michael Diva, Reagan called Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin. Menachem, this is a holocaust, Reagan said. Mr. President, I think I know what a holocaust is, Begin replied in a sarcastic voice. Reagan refused to give ground, bluntly telling Begin he had to stop the bombing. Twenty minutes later, Begin called back saying he had ordered Sharon, to Ariel Sharon, to halt the attacks. Reagan thanked him, hung up and said to Deaver, I didn't know I had that kind of power. End quote. I don't want to paint Ronald Reagan as some sort of saint. He certainly wasn't. And it was American betrayals in the days and weeks that followed that would lead to the massacre under Israeli oversight of thousands of Palestinian refugees at the Sabra and Shetila camps by Israeli-backed Lebanese militias. The point is that one man does have the power today to pick up the phone and order Benjamin Netanyahu to stop the bombing, to stop the genocide. That man is, of course, Joe Biden. Everyone knows that without the -the -the round-the-clock airlift from the United States, Israel would run out of bombs to drop on Palestinian children in days or weeks. But that's not who Joe Biden is. And it's not who Joe Biden has ever been. Let's go back again to the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1982. Shortly after that war, Menachem Begin met with members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee In Washington, when he got back to Occupy Jerusalem, Begin told Israeli reporters, quote, a young senator rose and delivered a very impassioned speech. I must say that it's been a while since I've heard such a talented speaker, and he actually supported Operation Peace for Galilee, end quote. Of course, Operation Peace for Galilee is the name Israel gave its bloodbath in Lebanon. The young senator that Begin was referring to, Joe Biden, said he would go even further than Israel, that he'd forcefully fend off anyone who sought to invade his country, even if that meant killing women or children. I dissociated myself from these remarks, Begin said. I said to him, no, sir, attention must be paid. According to our values, it is forbidden to hurt women and children, even in war. Sometimes there are casualties among the civilian population as well, but it is forbidden to aspire to this. This is a yardstick of human civilization, not to hurt civilians. Of course, Begin was lying. Israel has always murdered men, women, and children without thought and with total impunity. But even for Menachem Begin, the former Irgun terrorist, Biden's pro-Israel extremism was too much to openly associate himself with. Biden hasn't changed, and sadly, nor has the rest of the American ruling class. If anything, their unconditional support for Israel is even more extreme, turbocharged now with Christian Zionist fanaticism. And people are noticing. President Joe Biden's approval rating has declined to the lowest level of his presidency, 40%, a strong majority of all voters disapprove of his handling of foreign policy and the Israel-Hamas war, according to the latest national NBC News poll. That network reported on Sunday. NBC adds, and I quote, the erosion for Biden is most pronounced among Democrats, a majority of whom believe Israel has gone too far in its military action in Gaza And among voters aged 18 to 34, with a whopping 70% of them disapproving of of Biden's handling of the war. This poll is a stunner, and it's stunning because of the impact the Israel-Hamas war is having on Biden, says Bill McInturff of Public Opinion Strategies, one of the pollsters that conducted this survey. I don't mention this because I care about Joe Biden's approval rating or how he or his party are going to do in this or that election. I mention it as a reminder of how even here in the United States, the vast majority of people are utterly horrified by what Israel and the Biden administration are doing in Gaza, despite the barrage of propaganda telling the public that the mass extermination of Palestinian children is just Israel exercising its alleged right to self-defense. It is this popular disgust and anger expressed all over the world that remains the, re- the main hope for people in Gaza and for us. The one message that all our friends in Gaza keep repeating whenever they can reach us is to stay in the streets, to keep protesting, to keep calling your representatives. Don't take the pressure off. People in Gaza are counting on you. They're counting on all of us together.
0: Thank you so much, Ali. Uh, We are now joined by Ahmed Massoud, an award-winning Palestinian and British writer from Gaza living in London. Ahmed is the author of the novels Vanished and The Shroudmaker, His family is originally from the Palestinian village of Deir Isnid and he grew up in Gaza. Ahmed, thank you so much for joining us today on the Electronic Intifada.
4: Thank you. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Uh, First off, uh, this is the question that we have to ask. If you could uh, talk about your family in Gaza right now, specifically... um, your relatives inside the Jabalia refugee camp uh, and, and your overall reaction to the last nearly 50 days of this genocide so far.
4: Sure. I mean, I, could, I wish I could summarize it in like a very coherent sentence. Every day is a roller coaster of emotions as you can imagine. My immediate concern is the safety of my family, my siblings, all of them, uh, about eight of them in the Jabalia camp. Um, I've got one sister in the middle of Gaza Strip in the Nuseirat area, uh, and my mum as well, who who is still uh, there in Jabalia camp in in the north. Um, I spent the entire day today um, on messages with them and with my sister, trying to kind of determine what the situation is and whether they should leave Jabalia camp or not. Um, neither option is 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 any good at all. Um, leaving is not an option. Staying is not an option um as you have described and as the news has been reporting israel has been bombing houses indiscriminately um and taking out entire neighborhoods um so a lot of innocent people are dying on a daily basis we stopped counting the death toll so i'm really really stressed about that of course and about the the, the idea that they will be bombed um on their own uh in their own home Yet at the same time, uh, the main issue with leaving is that my mum's health is not very good. She can't walk. Um, She's an elderly woman. Um, She can't walk long distances. She needs uh, care, medical care. Uh, She needs people to look after her and it's not very easy for her to leave. Um, My sister is heavily pregnant and she can't easily walk either um right right now what we know from people who have left and have fled to the south is that you have to walk for at least 10k uh, in order to find a um a donkey's cart to transport you up to the point where uh, the israelis have installed checkpoints for Din Street. this is not possible for my mom it's, it's practically impossible she will die walking um and as we know and the reports have come that there are many many incidents where um they they've been shooting at people who're fleeing to the south uh not just shooting but also bombing if that happens my mom will die so all options are incredibly, incredibly tough and unfortunately I feel bad for my brother where all my siblings are staying at the moment that he has to make that call, he has to make that decision. I've been trying to support him, trying to message him where when I can but it's, it's, it's quite impossible and I can't really say much to him in a sense. I can't tell him this is what you should do and or, or not because in the end they have to make that decision. They know better uh, in, in a way um, and Actually, it makes sense they don't because they don't have any communication either. So he's relying on me for information. I'm trying to give it to him, but I can't, you know, help help him with that decision at all. Um, this is this is not right. This is just this. I can't believe that this is happening. I can't believe that a uh, people are being expelled out of their homes, out of their safe homes. Uh, and B, that this is allowed to happen, and C, that actually even the road and, and the passage to, to what is supposed to be a safe place is not even a safe place, and even the safe, the supposedly safe space, is not safe either. I mean, this is just insane. It's out of like, I don't know, out of a fictional story or something, something from Lord of the Rings in Mordor or something. This is what it is, really. Um, and I find that uh unbelievable, and I find that yeah, the, the fact that it's continuing to happen, that it is allowed to happen, it's just uh shameful to be honest with you. Unbelievably shameful to everybody who is allowing it to continue to happen. As for my reaction for the last uh, 44 days or four now, um, obviously it's been a mixture of emotions, of, of sadness. to have lost this um, beautiful place uh, called Gaza City. The beaches, the cafes, the people knew, um, I lost some cousins. There's been like incredible pain and sadness uh, inside me that I can't even begin to articulate and I haven't had time to even grieve about it. Um, I was in Gaza in May uh, this last May, so only six months ago, uh, sitting on the beach with uh, friends and family, uh, having coffee, having shisha and just kind of discussing the future and hoping that the future will be bright um, but now it all seems to be disappearing off the map the entire of Gaza city seems to be disappearing off the map um, the house i grew up in uh, got bombed recently i lost some cousins uh, in there um, and and nothing is going to bring that place and the memories that i had um, so yeah it's been it's been a time of emotions that i cannot really articulate in any any possible way and the most difficult thing this time you know um and when i say this time is because as a palestinian from gaza living outside unfortunately we have lived through this agony several times during several wars uh, on gaza um Apologies, the light is just uh, went off. Just because I just need to move because it's a uh, uh, sensory thing. Just give me one second. Apologies.
3: It's just impossible to imagine what Ahmed is going through, especially unable to help from afar and unable. I mean, but pe- people there yeah. are almost helpless as well. And I'm just trying to put myself in his shoes is just impossible to do and and you think about that repeated all over Gaza. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Apologies about the um okay. uh, the lighting, you know. Um it's just felt like being in Gaza in a way somehow. Mm. Um, this is just like a glimpse of it, to be honest with you. Um, but I think, yeah, one of the things that I found incredibly difficult this time, and I had never experienced emotions like this in my entire life, even though I'm used to Gaza being attacked, several wars um, from 2006, 2008 and 9, 2012, 2014, 2021, even in this last May, there was another assault on, assault on Gaza. The lack of communication, not being able to pick up the phone and check on your mum, and say, are you okay? That is just an, an emotion I never thought I would have to, to experience, to be honest with you. 48 hours, uh, sometimes 72 hours of nothing. You don't know at the end of it whether your mum will be alive or not and your siblings are alive or not. And that has been incredibly, incredibly painful. There's nothing in the world that I can describe it. And I hope, I really hope, none of the listeners and people watching today will ever Ever have to experience that, that that feeling because you feel so powerless, you feel so angry, you just want to shut down completely. Your system is shutting down completely, and you don't know if you're going to reboot at the end of it or not.
3: Ahmed, uh, it's you know I, I we've run out of words to express. Uh, you know the the we'll we'll need to invent new words. It feels like to express some of the grief and horror and outrage and anger we feel Uh, even those of us you know I I'm very fortunate that I got to visit Gaza once and over the years I've made many friends uh, in Gaza and from Gaza and we have our colleagues that who we work with in Gaza and for us the worry is, is desperate and it's hour by hour you don't know who you're going to hear from and so for, for, for you who have your mom there and your immediate family it's just unimaginable but mm. I want to ask you, Ahmed what, what are you hearing from them in Jabalia in terms of the day-to-day situation in terms of basic things like food, water uh, shelter, what are you hearing from them? clearly they're in a desperate enough situation that they're thinking of leaving. but if you can just describe any of the specifics that they're telling you because I think it's so important to get that on the record
4: yeah, I mean the issue here is that they don't know themselves in in a way you know so they kind of like it's, it's almost going to the market to the neighborhood to buy stuff but they're going blind in a sense because they they don't know what is available and what's not. They don't know if there are supplies or or not so my brother tells me that he goes to the market whatever he finds in there which is nothing, um, he just gets it and then hopes to make something out of it in in a sense. The shops are either closed or have their shelves empty because nothing has cut into the north at all. there are some sort of basic sort of supplies that they've had like a sack of flour that they've stored, you know, a long time ago, um, some lentils that they've been eating a lot of lentils. Um uh but but really they can't Go and buy stuff. There isn't enough food for them, and right now it's getting worse because, as I said, most of my siblings and my mum and their kids and their families are at his place. So he has to, f- to feed about 65 people, you know. So uh, and and he can't find enough food for all those people. In terms of water, um, they tell me that the water comes in every five days for one hour. Um, They have the water, so they have to fill every possible vessel in the house uh, to make sure that they store it for five days. Um, But again, they don't know if it's going to come, what time it's going to come. Are they going to be asleep? Are they going to be awake? Or you know, how long for? How much can they fill? Um, So it's kind of that darkness that they're living in themselves, that they don't know what is going on, even within their immediate neighborhood. Like I said, a few days ago, um, one of my cousin's house was bombed. Um we still don 't know up until this time we know one of them was killed, but we don 't know the rest of our our cousins you know they're they're close cousins we don 't know how many like we know one person, but then his brothers and sisters and his kids, and all of that we don 't know that yet um because people are not leaving they 're not leaving their homes um and uh, obviously, the news is not reporting. We stopped reporting the names of the dead um so you don 't know what was going on. So I'm trying to support them with that and kind of send them information as much as possible, kind of keeping an eye on the news, keeping an eye on what people are talking about. I'm connected with friends in there as well, keeping sort of a sort of network of information for them because that is that is important as well. Um, and I, I think the main thing now is that, is there going to be a ceasefire or not? Sometimes they, they beg me just to say like, uh, can you tell us if there is there a ceasefire? And I'm like, I can't really tell you because there isn't. Unfortunately, I would love to, you know. And then they send me sort of news headlines and they say, is it true? There's talk of a humanitarian pause. Is it true? And I'm like, I really, you know, <laughs> let me look, let me check for you. Um, but again, all of that with communication being so bad, um, I got an eSIM for them. Um, which barely works, and they have to go up to the roof to send messages, and the roof is not safe it 's dangerous um so it's it 's really 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 painful um at the moment but and again, the other thing that is really that they 're talking a lot about is that is this another Nakba or not you know are they are that 's what they 're worried about they 're really worried about that um and the loss of their homes and being ethnically cleansed and becoming refugees yet again we grew up in a refugee camp and to actually become refugees again is, is 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 a nightmare for them my niece is um studying to be a doctor at at her university which has now been bombed so she already knows that her future there is almost destroyed um she's excellent with you know her education she really wants to become a successful doctor um, and she's begging me she's telling me please don't don't let uh, my dad her bro- uh, my brother um don't let him leave Like i want to stay here i don't want to become a refugee i don't want to go into a refugee camp you know um, in a school with no food with people i don't know i would rather stay here in my house but then how can you make that decision? How can you like if if they get bombed uh in their own home? Like I can't convince my brother to stay and I can't convince him to leave. So people are really worried about this idea of a new Nakba, which is really what it's looking like at the moment. It's ethnic cleansing. That's what they're doing. They're they, they're bombing hospitals, schools, infrastructure, you know, government buildings, everything, just so that the north becomes in, inhabitable in a sense. Um and it's becoming more and more obvious every every day. you know Gaza City is a ghost town at the moment. There are a lot of people still there by the way I, they're estimated around eight hundred thousand mm. people are still in the north, so and that 's a large number of people who need medical care, who need education, who need infrastructure to to support them. Um, As you mentioned as well um, in your intro, they're now asking people in the south to to, to evacuate a a small area which is called Mawasi, which is on the beach, which is about one mile long. So they want the entire of the Gaza Strip which is 2.3 million people to move to that one-mile strip. I mean, how is that possible? How is, how is this even allowed to happen? Um, this is just terrorism uh, and, and, and terrorizing people. Um, so I think a lot of what my family are thinking about at the moment is, do I have food or water? Yes, they're thinking about that. There is a sense of community in Jabalia camp, by the way. That people are coming together. Whoever has got flour, they're baking for the whole street. You know, whoever has got lentils, they're making like big pots and distributing. People have an amazing sense of community and coming together. Um, whoever has got water is kind of giving gallons to others. You know, so there is a there is a bit of that. So it is a priority in a sense. But I think the immediate priority really are two things. One is, is there a ceasefire? Uh, And then the other one is, is this another Nakba or not? We don't want to lose our homes. Um, uh, My brother now is telling me like he doesn't want to leave my mom, so he can't leave my mom behind. Um, But yet, if he takes her with him and something happens, he'll be responsible. I don't know, would you leave? What, what, what would you decide? And my brain is about to explode today because I've just been sitting here in the office at work in London, kind of working through so many things and trying to think, like, what shall I tell him? And clearly he wants a direction somehow. He wants a, a an advice uh, from his brother who's in London now. And But I feel like if I give him anything, it's going to be the wrong one, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, I mean, these are impossible decisions that anyone uh you know shouldn't should not be asked to make and and you know I can understand you know kind of delegating to someone who's not there. just tell me what I need to do
3: um, i I get those you know, questions yeah. from some of our friends and colleagues in Gaza. they say they ask me, is there going to be a ceasefire and um All I can say is this is what we're hearing in the news. In fact, over the last uh, couple of days, over the weekend, there were reports that an agreement was reached for a five-day ceasefire and that there were just a few details to to work out. Uh, And then it seems to have evaporated. Whether it will materialize, we don't know. But people are desperate for a break from this. Uh, of course, they want it to stop, but they will accept any kind of break that uh, just allows them even to catch their breath, it it, it sounds like. Ahmed, uh, you are a Palestinian whose family is in Gaza, and you're in London. Can you describe what uh, that is like, for better or for worse? We, we've spoken uh, previously to our uh, friend... Um, Ahmed Samak who is in Dublin now, and he talked about the small community of people from Gaza there and how they support each other while also going through all of this trauma that uh, you also described. At the same time, we're seeing some of the biggest uh, rallies in support of Palestinians anywhere in the world taking place in London. W- what's, what's it like for you?
4: Very good question. I mean, I think um, it's been agony, of course, uh, for me. Um, like I said, most of us Palestinians from Gaza who are outside, we we are kind of used to wars on Gaza. <laughs> you know, uh, it's not the first time, unfortunately, or second time, or third time. So. I feel sort of obviously lucky and privileged to be here and to be safe and to be able to use my voice to to speak about the situation and to present you know my family's suffering suffering and try to make a difference to influence uh people to think about the human side of things and about us as people and and, and about our stories as well um i think to start with to be honest with you i, I didn't speak to anybody i didn't want to um like engage especially with media i think pa- one of the problems why we're here today is because of Western media and the way we, they treated us and the way they presented us and the kind of license they gave to Israel to do what they like, and that's what, why why we're here. And, and to an extent, it's still kind of the same. Uh, they're not the Israelis are not questioned, they're not challenged. You know, especially after they've come to Al Shifa Hospital, they're not held accountable. Um, and if the if government governments don't do that and the media doesn't, then no,
3: nobody does, to be honest with you. So.
4: I kind of disengaged myself from Western media completely, and up to this point, i boycotted the BBC. They've they kind of begged me to be, to be on on shows, and I said no. Uh, I had a play on, and one of them bought a ticket to come and actually see my show, and uh, cornered me afterwards to actually come and talk on her show, and I said no because they were part of the problem. Um, and but now I think I'm feeling a bit sort of more um, comfortable with the kind of community support and the network support around us. And also seeing so many people going on the streets demonstrating as you said in London and the large numbers, you know, Calling for you know Palestinian rights uh, and for our freedom and, and for a ceasefire. You know the main thing is a ceasefire. That's what we're asking for. I'm reassured by that, and I think this is a, a message to send to to people who go and demonstrate that actually your voice is very important to us. Not just people in Gaza, but also people from Gaza who are outside and Palestinians everywhere, because it sends a strong signal that we're not alone. We're not on our own. We don't have to hide somewhere. Like at the beginning of the events, as you may remember, many many Palestinian events were cancelled. Our voices were being silenced like immediately, and I think now we've got a we, we we regained our voice a little bit um, thanks to the support of so many you know uh, people who went on the streets and and saw what was happening and what was coming as well. Um, but also the other thing to mention is that for us, Gaza, like I grew up in Gaza and I moved to London in 2002, but Gaza has always been a point of you know, agony and pain and, and sadness in a sense because it's gone through so many wars. Every time I go to Gaza, it takes me about three days to get there, uh, sleeping on checkpoints, going from Cairo to Gaza. Uh, I have a British passport. I'm not allowed to go through any other means apart from the Rafah border because I have the Gaza ID. Uh, It takes three days to to kind of cross. Uh, My dad passed away in February. I missed his funeral for that reason. I couldn't go to to say goodbye to my dad. Um, We've always been suffering silently about Gaza. Um, It's always been a painful thing that we hold within us. Proudly, we hold it proudly, Um, yet at the same time, it's just kind of every day that Gaza was under siege, a piece of us was falling off, uh, and I think nobody was noticing that. Um, And I think it's important to remember this in this context. Now those pieces are falling very quickly and very, you know, um, abundantly in a sense. And and I just want things to to stop now or in ceasefire. But I also want the whole situation in Gaza and Palestine and this the the Palestinian rights for freedom to to be um upheld and to actually get to a settlement where we finish this, we end this once and for all, please, because we can't take this anymore.
3: Ahmed, I'm so sorry to hear about your father and uh, and on top of everything else, not to have been able to go and not to have been able to be there to support your mother and the rest of your family is an additional agony. Um, Ahmed, I I want to show you something. You've probably already seen it because it's gone viral. This is a clip that was posted by uh, Khan, the Israeli national uh, television network, the equivalent of the BBC in Israel, and it's a song uh, by Israeli children who are said to come from the uh, so-called Gaza Envelope, some of the colonial settlements near the Gaza boundary. Let's take a look at it and then let's get your uh, reaction. We're going to queue it up now and uh, show you a little bit of it. I don't think we're going to look at the whole thing. So here we go. <laughs> It goes on like that for another two minutes or so, which we will spare ourselves. Yeah. (laughs) What what do you think when you see uh, cute uh, children with angelic voices uh, singing words like that? Uh, Is that something you ever expected to see in your life?
4: I was just, I mean, I saw that, uh, I think, yesterday or so, and I was thinking, like, imagine if these were brown children, you know, from Gaza, Uh, Singing the same on the other side just just imagine just put yourself in that in that kind of moment and imagine where it would be reported where it would be shown um this clip wasn't shown on the BBC wasn't shown anywhere on western media um we saw it on social media because it was captured there just imagine just imagine and put that sort of situation and what they would say about us you know um, it's a shame. I, I felt sorry for those children. I really felt sorry for those children because of the propaganda, because of the indoctrination of you know of, of of that. You know, and then I thought these are the soldiers that these are the kind of kids that will grow one day maybe become a soldier a soldiers because as you know um, national service in Israel is mandatory. You know, so most most of them will, are likely to serve in the army. And I thought these are the ones who are probably going to be on the checkpoints and these are the ones who are probably have to, you know, um, point at an elderly uh, Palestinian man with his walking stick to cross the checkpoint. And these are the same kids who later on will look at that old man and probably shoot him or, or, or that pregnant woman and not allow her to get either the care. You know, this these, these were my faults. you know, and I just thought, why? Why? Like, why do you need to do that, you know? Why don't you try something else for, for a change? You know, like you've been trying the same approach for a long time. Let's, let's just think about why don't we just talk about peace for a second? Why don't we talk, talk about why what did those children were singing to Palestinian children and in, in in Gaza? Um, uh, apologies about the lights just keeps going off. There's nothing I can do about it because the switch is really far. Um, so imagine if those kids were just singing for peace and and a message to children in Gaza, you know, a message of support or some sort of support, you know, or, or whatever it is. Wouldn't it, wouldn't, it be, wouldn't it give a different signal? But no, unfortunately this is the approach. Uh this is the approach that the Israelis have taken. Uh this is a, a an official approach by the Israeli government, not just the children, but also their ministers who who threatened of a nuclear bomb, um, of their you know, religious leaders, of the, their entire government. They they are they do have a right wing government that nobody's talking about at all, by the way, you know. Um and I just wish that this wasn't yeah, shown at all, to be honest with you, because it hurts a lot uh that a child is singing for our annihilation and and destruction and and, and genocide you know who who teaches a child uh, something like this um so yeah, it was painful. It was really painful to see. Um I couldn't finish it to be honest with you. Like I just saw half of it, one minute of it all from then and and I just had to stop it because it's it's impossible to watch, to be honest. Uh, and that was shown on national media, uh, their the as you said, the equivalent of BBC at uh, in, in, in Israel. Um I really hope that at some point when this whole thing is over that somebody will come and think, well, Again, let's try a different approach with Gaza and Palestine, let's, let's see what happens if we give them all their rights, let's see what happens if we give them a state, if we open their economy, if they have an airport, if they have, you know, uh, settlements are gone, the wall is, is, is removed, let's see what happens. Let's try that for two or three years and, or five years and then see what happens. If it doesn't work, we'll go back, because yeah. clearly they can invade any time, clearly they can destroy at any time um yeah that's that's really my hope at the end of this and i have to hold on to hope because otherwise i have nothing to hold on to
0: well ahmed masood we want to thank you so much for joining us today on the electronic intifada live stream um where can people get in touch with you read your work um and uh and keep in touch
4: Sure, I've got a website which I can put in the chat um uh wait a second, can they see my chat if I um
0: uh no, but we can there? put it up on the screen.
4: Sure, I'll just put my website in there and you can post it um and I'm also on social media, of course, Instagram and all these things I can put that
3: to um in here great, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ahmed. We appreciate it, and we 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 keep your family and all the uh, families in Gaza in our thoughts and in our prayers all the time.
4: Thank you, and keep doing what you're doing. It's important to tell the story and and show the truth as well.
0: Thanks so much, Ahmed. Um, We are now going to turn to our good friend Yusuf Al Jamal. Yusuf is a Palestinian whose family was ethnically cleansed from the town of Akar near Lyd in 1948. Uh, Yusuf grew up in Gaza's Nusayrat refugee camp where his family remains uh, and he joins us from Turkey. Yusuf, thank you so much for being back on the live stream with us.
5: Thank you for having me.
0: Um, Same question I asked Ahmed, how is your family doing, uh, especially in Nusayrat? What is the situation with them right now?
5: Um, My family is lucky enough because they did not have to um, move south. They live just um, a mile away from the Gaza Valley, and they stayed in their home. Um, But at the same time, they have uh, multiple people from Um, the South itself, who had to evacuate their houses and leave, um, either because of very close bombardment or because their own houses um, were bombed, such as the house of um, my father's cousins, where nine people were killed. Um, My family uh, is is lucky because they have flour. They got uh, a sack of flour today. They were very happy that they finally got it um at a very expensive price uh, where aid into gaza hasn't um, got for the past 45 years uh, 45 days and uh, people have to struggle uh, where israel bombed the um, uh, peace uh, mills company in Balah um this is you know a myth where israel is trying to promote and tell people that the south is is safe, move south from the north. Um, Palestinian poet, uh, Musab Abu Toha, according to his wife and brother, tried to move south today, and he was arrested by Israeli um, um, forces at one of the checkpoints um, on his way to, to the south. Uh, his child is an American citizen, and he was instructed to go to Rafa Crossing in order to be uh, able to leave. Um, but again, he was arrested. There is no safe place in, in Gaza, and um, my family is struggling to get clean water. Um, my family is they They have no idea about what's going uh, on around them, even in Nusayarat itself. They get their news from me because there is a complete blackout when I can communicate with them every time and then. I had to make multiple calls to multiple numbers to be able to to speak to them. And this is my daily struggle outside Gaza, Uh, being able to reach uh, out to my family just to ask them if they're okay or not. Um, Meanwhile, I have to watch the news and I I update them on what's going on Um, in in Nusayirat itself. They're not aware, they hear the bombs. No one is leaving their house because it's very risky and dangerous. And when I had the chance, I update them on what's going on, whose house was bombed, who was killed, etc., etc. Um, But again, compared to many Palestinians in Gaza who were forcibly displaced to the south, my family is uh, lucky. We lost a total of 10 people so far uh, in this genocide. And um, as Ahmed uh, said, it's a reminder of... uh, uh, Nakba of 1948 uh, people are worried that they're going to become refugees again and in, in their life um, Even my sister who lives in Maghazi refugee camp She doesn't know what's going on with my family and I call her and I update her on my family um, People have no uh, means of communication uh, sometimes when they can they text each other they they call each other uh, but this is not the case and and most of the time and um, they count on their relatives outside who have some access and they can call from time to time um, to, to inform them uh, and even you know being able to sustain your battery like people are back to very basic means of Like my brother uses his uh, car to charge a battery that that my family could use to charge their phones. And um, soon he will uh, run out of fuel. Uh, So this is not uh, sustainable. And uh, my mom told me today that she's back to, um, you know, washing uh, clothes and laundry and like using the most basic uh, ways and means. Uh, her hand and um, she's also cooking on fire you know people are back to to the 70s and 60s in in, in Gaza and this is what Israel said the Israeli army said they will bring Gaza back um, 50 years back and this is what they did
0: it's it's unbearable Um, I'm so sorry Yusuf Um, can you Talk also about your friend, uh, also uh, a contributor to the Electronic Intifada, Ra'ed uh, Kadoura, and, um, and what happened to him and his family.
5: So yesterday, um, Ra'ed was with his family, his extended family, his parents, his siblings, and um, his wife and children. And um, his wife just gave uh, birth uh, two weeks ago. Uh, she uh, had to go uh, caesarean, you know, surgery without uh, anesthesia because of the lack of anesthesia at Gaza's hospitals. Um, And she survived that. She gave birth to um, beautiful uh, twins, two daughters, and um, Israel bombed their house. Everyone in the house, almost everyone in the house was killed. Twenty-nine people were killed, including... Raed his uh, newly born um, daughters uh, his his son and his other daughter total of four uh, children um uh, his wife is said to be in a very critical um situation and injury uh, he also Raed lost his parents i just saw a post on facebook of Raid celebrating his father's 70 uh, uh, year birthday uh, or anniversary. Um, all these lives were, were cut short. raid was a young and um, aspiring um, academic. He finished his BA from the uh, Al-Azhar University in uh, Gaza. He obtained a BA in English language and literature. He liked literature. And translation. He is the co-translator of the Prisoner's Diaries, Palestinian Voices from the Israeli Gulag, which was published in Malaysia. He co-translated the book with me. We spent a lot of time together. Uh, we were working at the Hashem Sani, uh, Hashim Sani um, so library in Gaza for almost two years and then I left Gaza to do my MA just a semester before uh, Raed did. Raed later joined me at the same university, University of Malaya uh, in Malaysia, where he also met Ali. He finished his uh, MA there and then he started his PhD at uh, UKM, uh, the National University of Malaysia. Uh, He spent a total of eight years in Malaysia, um, working on his postgraduate studies. Once he finished his PhD, He went back to Gaza, and he kept looking for jobs. He started writing for different websites, including uh, the the Electronic Intifada. But then he couldn't find a job, so uh, he applied to work as a teacher, a job that someone with a BA can do in Kuwait, and he started working there for almost a year. Then he returned back to Gaza uh, to visit, and he stayed there. Up until when Israel started the uh, most recent genocide against Palestinians in Gaza Um, and then um, his house was bombed and he he lost his life along with his uh, extended uh, family Uh, you know what is happening to the Palestinian people uh, and academics are part of the Palestinian people uh, is very tragic in many different ways. Uh, in another country, Ra'id would be um, an academic with aspiring career. Uh, he's published, he published journal articles, book reviews, you can find him on Google Scholar. Um, but then, you know, the life and the uh, future of this young academic was cut short uh, by an Israeli uh, b- bombardment that not only ended his His life but also the life of his extended family. Um, Almost every uh, single one in his extended family was was killed. Um, It's very tragic and uh, you know today we honor Ra'id and many people like Ra'id. We honor 13,300 Palestinians who were counted so far by Palestinians in Gaza as victims of Israel's um, ongoing genocide, uh, let alone thousands of others who are still under the rubble. Uh, I remember Raed very well in in, in Malaysia. We took many trips together. Um, He was a a person with a sense of humor. Uh, He was very kind. He would help young people, like students especially, moving to Malaysia from Gaza. He would take them around and register for them. trying to help them to, st- to start their lives. Uh, he also dedicated some of his time, as I said, to promoting the Palestinian cause. He co-translated The Prisoner's Diaries, uh, a book on Palestinian political prisoners. Um, mm. But unfortunately, you know, his life was cut uh, short. And, um, you know, we honor him today because there are multiple people, even the Islamic University and Lazar University where. Ra'ed did his BA, um, were completely destroyed in Gaza. So Israel's war on Palestinian academics and young intellectuals is part and parcel of this genocide uh, because a lot of these young academics and uh, researchers and young people on social media, they're telling the story to the outside world and Israel is trying to silence them. Uh,
3: Yusuf, you you mentioned that... uh I met uh, Raed in Malaysia. I believe that was in around 2015 or 2016. And I, I had come to Kuala Lumpur for a conference, and I think it was at the University of Malaya. Yes. And I remember meeting a group of students from Gaza there, among them Raed. And w- what I remember most, of course I remember Raed as a very kind, gentle, friendly person, I remember sitting and uh, we ate together. But what I really remember from all of the uh, young people I met from Gaza is how much uh, you all laughed, how much humor there was, and how much happiness. And happiness not because everything was fine in the world, but happiness because uh, I felt like you were a group of young people who really uh, wanted to get the best from life from the for, for yourselves and for your families and that you had left your families in Gaza uh, to look for opportunities that would allow you to uh, achieve things in the world and to support them and make them proud of you. And I know that they're proud of you. And uh, Ra'ed went back to Gaza to uh, make a future there for himself and his family because he believed in Gaza, he believed in Palestine, and like so many young people and elderly people and newborn babies, um, Israel doesn't care for their lives. But we, we honor Ra'ed as, as much as we honor all of uh all of the people who uh, who Israel has murdered. Yusuf, I want to ask you a, a question, if I may, about a mutual friend of ours, uh, a dear friend, someone we love very much and who's been with us on this uh, podcast, on this live stream, is Rifhat al-Ara'ir. Um, Rifhat is a teacher. I'm going to ask you to t- talk about him. I'm just going to update people with two things. He wrote uh, an article for us uh, a few days ago that uh, I think we can put up on the screen. I didn't. I don't think we prepared it before, but uh, Tamara will will be able to find it while I'm talking. Uh, thank you, Tamara. Um, uh, Rifat sent me a uh, an SMS message on Saturday, uh, which uh, it's been very very difficult to. Uh, to, to reach him his he and his family have been displaced several times he did send me a message on Saturday uh, saying we are fine and making a joke believe it or not uh, Rifat uh, I shared it with you uh, Yusuf um, and he wrote this article for us about uh, the how his family left the area of the Rantisi hospital and Uh, exposing some of the lies Israel has told. But Rifat, uh, through everything that he's gone through, including the bombing of his house, uh, including the loss of family members, including being displaced several times, has not stopped writing and has not stopped, I would say, effectively being uh, our editor in Gaza. Uh, sending us articles from different people, helping them to write articles so that they can ex- express what they're going through. Sending articles any way we any way he can, including by um, WhatsApp. Um, I think you'll agree with me that that Rifat is one of is an extraordinary person, one of many extraordinary people in Gaza. But I just wanted you because Rifat can't be with us today. Uh, just to talk about the work he has done over the years, because we have had the privilege of publishing so many writers from Gaza who have come to us through Rifat, and I I, I, I feel like uh, we should we should learn a little bit more from someone who knows him better than almost anyone else
5: um rifat uh, i met rifat for the first time at the islamic university of gaza he was my lecturer and i attended uh, some of his classes and he was one of the toughest uh, lecturers i have met in my life uh, but i learned a lot of things from him he was very tough and he was not very generous with uh, grades and marks and um uh, but at the same time what i learned uh, in his classes uh, doesn't you know doesn't match anything i learned in, in my life uh for example Rifat introduced uh, me and many other palestinian students in his class to um, malcolm x he taught us to be critical thinkers and uh, he opened uh you know many um Windows for us to the outside world. Uh, He opened many doors for us. Uh, He connected us with the websites He uh, trained us to be creative writers Um, I wrote a short story titled Omar X uh, Which was inspired by Malcolm X that uh, encouraged me to write and He published it in in a book called Gaza writes back. You can see it in the background Ali's uh, background And, uh, of course, he encouraged many others. There are like 22 young writers from Gaza who contributed to um, this book that Rifat edited. Uh, He also edited another book called Gaza Unsilenced. And, uh, as uh, Ali said, he encouraged, I would say, hundreds of people, young people. The majority of young people you see today on social media writing in English are his students. Uh, So he trained... An army of writers and bloggers um, to write and to tell the story. Uh, he has always been uh, interested in storytelling, and um, you know we even memorize some of his um, sayings. Uh, Palestine is a story away. Um, Palestine is a stone away, he says. And. Uh, you know we're very much inspired by by his work and his encouragement and guidance now many of his students dozens of them are phd holders uh teaching at different universities in in, in the world uh, rifat chose to stay in gaza and he has been very active as ali said uh tweeting and telling the story from gaza he refused to move to the south he, he's in gaza city and it's extremely difficult to be in Gaza City these days, especially that Rifat has a family, too. He He's a father of five, and um, he has to care for his family. He has to think about their survival. Um, I also know Rifat as uh, you know one of the greatest uh, people with a sense of humor. Um, he always cracks jokes, and we traveled together uh, to, to the U.S. in 2014 promoting Gaza rights back. Um, Rifat missed many opportunities uh, because of the siege uh, imposed on Gaza. He he couldn't travel. Um, He also contributed a chapter to Light in Gaza, another book. Um, And many of the people in in, in the book, actually, are his students.
1: Uh,
5: uh, So Rifat is everywhere. Uh, Remember when I uh, first arrived in Malaysia, we happened to be on the same flight from Cairo. Uh, He took me in. I didn't have a place. I didn't think about a place at the time because I was just thinking about leaving Gaza. And it took me five weeks to do so. Rifat took me in in his place for three weeks until I uh, figured out my uh, accommodation. And uh, as I said, we traveled together. We toured the United States for one month uh in back in 2014 where we met ali uh for the first time and i'm sure ali used to remember his jokes about the uh, pizzas between um, new york and chicago and the fight
3: uh, we took him to eat uh, deep dish chicago pizza and he was uh uh very uh impressed with it i think he still talks about it today in fact he 's still sending me pizza jokes from <laughs> Gaza now even as uh, even even though it 's so hard to communicate and I hesitate ever to mention pizza myself because it's like, well, how am I going to talk about pizza in a situation where people don't even have bread uh, but he continues to make uh, he continues to have this humor and uh, mm. I remember very well uh that uh, trip uh, that that photo there from when we from when we met uh, and I remember we were together in Philadelphia also and then again in Chicago i didn't realize it was in twenty fourteen it felt more recent but uh I have very very fond memories of of that and I'm just in awe of all the work Rifat continues to do under these conditions um, and has been such an incredible resource helping us to inform the world about what's happening in Gaza. I hope we'll have Rifat back on the live stream soon. I hope even more that we'll, we'll meet again. But I just yeah. wanted to, while we had you, Yusuf, to, uh, to let people know more about this, uh, this extraordinary person who means so much to all of us.
0: And I know Ahmed Masoud. I brought him back on um, from backstage to uh, to talk also about his friendship with Rifat. Um, Ahmed, uh, you want to chime yeah, in?
4: Yeah. Um, I've known Rifat for a long time. I mean, uh, when I heard you guys talk about him, I was like, "What has anything happened to him?" Because please, please don't. He's one of those people that. He's amazing and so important to to Palestine in general. He's got so much energy, so much creativity, so much uh, influence around uh, his humor, his humanity. It's just incredible. Um, I met him in several locations, uh, the last of which was in Gaza in May. and We were talking about creative stuff we wanted to do with the students, and he was telling me about students in Gaza, I just want to read the textbook and memorize it. You can't memorize a Shakespeare's play, you know, you have to understand it, you have to do it. And he was really angry, and I'm like, it's okay, that's fine, have some tea. It's all right. <laughs> uh, but so passionate about it. Um, some of the stuff he did before uh, on, um, like, an exhibition on the role of women uh, in Palestinian fiction. I mean, who does that in, in, in Gaza, to be honest with you? He's just always thinking of creative, different ways of presenting and engaging his students and as Yusuf said, by kind of thinking outside the box and introducing new critical uh, creative thinking. I saw him in Malaysia as well when I visited there. He was doing his PhD. Um, we went out on a ride as well and in London. Uh, yeah, various locations. I think he's, I hope that he's able to give us his voice because I think it's really important and very unique. And I hope he continues to be well. I just messaged him now to say um, we're, we're talking about you so I hope you can see it.
0: <laughs> yes um and we're going to try and get Rifat Al-Arir back on um as soon as we can as soon as there's any let up uh, in this in this uh just brutal brutal insanity that we're seeing um well we're going to let uh Ahmed and Yusuf uh go and um we, we you know we just want to Thank you so much, uh, Yusuf Al-Jamal, for for all of the work that you do. And um, please keep us updated on your family, of course. Uh, We'll have you back on very soon. And Ahmed, again, thank you so much. And the same, please keep us updated on your family. We're hoping that everybody stays uh, as safe as as, uh, possible these days. Thank you both.
3: Thank you both. And I hope we'll all meet again in happier times. Yeah. Thank you. To enjoy.
4: Thank
0: you for having us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is the electronic Intifada live stream. As we head into our second hour, we we wanted to, of course, um, bring John in to talk. Uh, you know, just as a change of pace, um, talk about where the resistance is at right now. Um, we're seeing, of course, uh, interesting developments in the north uh, by Hezbollah in Lebanon against Israeli military installations. Um, and as well, we're, we're seeing some very interesting Qassam videos coming out and uh, information about how the resistance is um, confronting uh, the Zionist enemy. Um, John, give us, uh, give us a, a thumbnail sketch of uh, what you've been tracking.
6: Well, yeah, what you said is right. I mean, there's resistance from the north to the south. Um, in the north, Hezbollah has escalated um, uh, their attacks from the north. Um, the West Bank is, particularly the northern West Bank, is basically locked in daily armed struggle in Tubas, Tolkarim, uh Nablus, Balata, Janine Camp. Um, I think any other time, like we've said before, we would be calling what's happening in the West Bank an intifada. Um, And what we're seeing in Gaza is the defense of Gaza um, from this massive Israeli mechanized invasion um, that's now three weeks old. Um, And we're seeing videos. uh, We saw a bunch of videos released this weekend that showed that the fight is still happening in the outer edges. Uh, Israel hasn't been able to maintain control even over the outer edges in the northwest and the northeast of the Gaza Strip um we saw videos uh this weekend um that that showed multiple israeli soldiers being killed and abu obeda gave uh his audio message and he told uh israelis that word of their deaths would come to them eventually suggesting that it's um an underreported uh, that Israel's under-reporting their deaths, which is something that um, Hezbollah used to do, release videos and reports saying this is where your soldiers died and then waiting for two days till Israel says, uh, basically confirms what we saw. And so Qassam showed that um, in their videos this weekend. Um, and then, sure enough, um, two days later, uh, Israel admitted the deaths of ten of their soldiers, eight seriously wounded um, fighting in northern Gaza. Israel doesn't tell us uh where or how um they died in fighting. they've really been under reporting their they haven't reported a wounded count as we've talked about, um and they often leak the deaths out like many days later, which um sort of confuses which attacks you're looking at um, from the uh, Kassam log and which ones the Israelis um, because we've seen videos that surely look like um, killed in action. We saw the thermobaric grenade, the fuel grenade be fired on a troop position in Beit Hanun with the soldiers sitting in the window. This weekend we saw a video um, of an Al Ghul sniper rifle hitting an Israeli soldier on foot in Beit Hanun and then for, uh, for the next uh, you know half, half a minute, minute, uh, other soldiers come in to try to, to retrieve the body of the shot soldier and they're getting shot. So we're seeing in these videos actual Israeli soldiers being killed and injured at a rate that um, the Israelis weren't uh, acknowledging, although they did acknowledge the next day. Um, So, yeah, we've seen um, resistance from the north to the south. We're seeing, Abu Abaydah said, 62 damaged um, or destroyed vehicles. I think damaged um, are a lot of them, Um, just in a four-day window. Then yesterday, they reported um, 25 uh, vehicles hit, and that's because the Israelis have hundreds of armored vehicles inside the Gaza Strip that are being hit. And we can see by these videos that there's still street by street fighting. We're still seeing Israeli, uh, we're still, we're seeing Kassam fighters hitting Israeli armor point blank from behind, um, which again just suggests that the Israelis aren't dismounting from their armor. They're not holding any of these neighborhoods. You know, the military term is clearing, um, which is which has a military term uh, is a military term that means That you've removed all resistance fighters from that area and that's clearly not what's happening we got reports in the Israeli media this weekend of a complex ambush um, on Israeli troops where 360-degree ambush where um, you know dozens of Qassam fighters um, and al Quds fighters it was one joint operation um, are coming out and hitting the Israeli armor Um, in a 360-degree ambush and then able to, under mortar fire, um, like complex combined arms actions, where the infantry and anti-tank units are hitting the tanks and then the mortar units, the artillery units, are coming in and providing cover for them to then withdraw. So these aren't suicide missions. They're not martyrdom missions. They're these fighters hitting complex ambushes and then retreating back to their bases safely to carry out another attack. Um, you know, we're, we're hearing reports from, because the Israelis are allowing some foreign press to embed um, and go in on these tours with them. And the economist the other day talked about how uh, he was in with an infantry battalion, which includes tanks and um, engineering units. Um, But that these units aren't allowed to go down, that there's a standing order in the IDF that nobody is allowed to go down into the tunnels. And so essentially when they're finding these tunnels, um, they're basically just shelling and bombing from the air um, to close the entrances. They're not actually... Um, going into the to the tunnels to do what the thing that they promised that they were going to do, which was route you know root out every uh, Kassam fighter in the Gaza Strip, and we can see that map that Tamara just pulled up there. It doesn't look um, all that different from last week. Those pinch marks um, are the bites where they moved in to get the hospitals, um, and a lot of that blue shaded area are heavily fiercely contested territories the the blue in the center there um in the center of gaza to the east is juhar al dik and zaytun there's reports of dozens of uh ambush um attacks just in on that axis um each day um so that that area is definitely contested area in the northeast um That's where we see Beit Hanun, and that's where those videos from this weekend were, where they're literally fighting from adjacent buildings. So they don't even control the building beside the building that they're in. And they took multiple casualties um, in Beit Hanun. And then if you look to the east in the top left corner, in the, in the, or sorry, the west, the northwest corner, Beit Lahia, that blue that pushes down to those two encircled hospitals, that's the beach. That's not a built-up area. So they're, they're going around the built-up areas. They're not able to control the built-up areas. That bite in the center on the left-hand side, that's the bite that they moved in to take Shifa through the unpopulated um, area of downtown where they blew up the Palestinian Legislative Council that hasn't met since 2006, and they planted a flag on top of it, even though nobody fought for that territory. Up there a little bit is where you see Shifa, where they uh, the Israeli soldiers um, from Flotilla 13, their, their best Navy SEALs, um, stormed the hospital and took photographs planting the flag on the roof of, of the largest hospital in Gaza. Those are the military successes that Israel has um, explained to us. They haven't explained any other... Um, significant military successes as their um, their concerted structural attack on hospitals has been taking place Um, they're not hitting military victories uh, where these hospitals are on the way to that military objective they're literally their objective is the hospitals Um, and there's fierce fighting Um, uh, in many cases there's more fighting today than there was the first days of the invasion. And I think in basic uh, guerrilla warfare understanding, that makes sense. Once the Israelis get fixed positions, um, the attacks will come um, even more so than when you're attacking the sharp end of the invasion spear, which doesn't make all that much sense um, for a guerrilla army that's uh, vastly outnumbered. Um, and don't themselves have tanks and airplanes. Although we do, we did see airplanes. We saw Qassam uh, launch this weekend um, one of their suicide drones, their attack drones, which is basically a drone that um, acts like a missile, a kamikaze drone. Uh, we saw that be launched today um, or this weekend. We also saw uh, a complex uh, suicide bombing attack in the north where three bombers went in carrying uh, Yassin shells and thermobaric shells as well as suicide vests and hit an Israeli position uh, in the north that um, we we haven't got casualty reports but we saw from the scene clearly casualties um, from that attack. We also saw videos um, with Palestinian fighters doing what we talked about before, where they literally take the Yassin warhead um, that acts like a grenade that has a pin, and we watch them literally walk up to the Israeli tank, put the device in between um, the, the reactive armor and the trophy system that knocks out incoming rounds, and slip it by hand right into that space Um, below the turret, which is just like incredible courage (laughs) for one thing, Um, but it's just like a precision guided missile that's put in right in that spot in the tank turret. And again, that's partially um, showing you that the Israelis aren't outside of their tanks because Palestinians are able to, we're just from these videos able to see that Palestinians are hitting them with complex ambushes, they're hitting them from behind. They're hitting them from close distances, distances that are close enough um, for the trophy system to be ineffective. Um, And we're seeing, you know, what the Israelis said that they lost 10%, um, 10% of their armors out of service 10 days into the ground operation. They haven't given numbers since then. Um, But that kind of rate of attrition doesn't sound like much until you say, um, you know, there's 700 or 800 um, vehicles and then you're, you're starting to talk about significant numbers just in the in the beginning um, of this war the Israelis haven't even taken up their fixed positions yet which will surely be hit harder um, and even if you use Israeli numbers which are clearly exaggerated and include massacring civilians but they're only talking about a few thousand maximum number of fighters killed and Israeli estimates themselves Um, you know, suggest that there's as many as 40,000 Qassam fighters, particularly when you consider all the national security forces that exist in Gaza themselves. Plus, you have the other factions that number in the tens of thousands. Um, There's still a long way to go in this war for Israel to to make any kind of claims of military success. Um, There haven't been any, We've just seen concerted attacks on hospitals. And I mean, Abu Abeda said that. Well, he said, you know, while while we're fighting um, your tanks and causing losses, you're preoccupied attacking civilian infrastructure, you know, talking about the Palestinian Legislative Council um, and hospitals and civilians just massacring civilians. There's no military objectives being reached um, that, that can be bragged about in any serious way. We see them. In Shifa Hospital raiding Shifa Hospital and being there for more than a week Um, and their evidence is again these phone calls um, You know just really thin evidence
3: Hold on John hold on Uh, We're going to get to some of that, but first of all, I just want to point out if we can go back to the map The the blue areas represent areas the Israelis have entered and on, on paper, which is what we're looking at, that looks like a lot, but I think I just want to emphasize the point I think I heard you making, which is that just because the Israelis are in those areas does not mean that they have secure control over them. And from the perspective of the resistance, they're not going to try to establish you know, a traditional front line with trenches and say we're going to hold the Israelis here. In a guerrilla war, you, you, can't, you actually can't stop the large conventional army from invading and entering your territory, <clears throat> nor would you try. But then what you do is you harass them, you ambush them, you come back behind them, you come up behind their lines, and you make it so that they can never relax for even a moment, because... They never know where the resistance is. And some of the videos you talked about, which, again, I I apologize to our audience that we're not showing them uh, because of the censorship on this platform where when we have shown them on a previous occasion, our entire episode was deleted afterwards. And we want to keep it up for people to see. But, John, you on on your Twitter account, you do post some of these videos, is that correct? So people can find them. Maybe we can put John's Twitter account up on the, on the scroll at the bottom so that people can find them there. And some of the videos we've seen just in the last few days include uh, the, on those occasions, as we've been saying now for a couple of weeks, the Israelis rarely, if ever, dare to get out of their tanks or armored vehicles. But what we saw is that on occasions when they have, they have been targeted very precisely and very lethally by either by Palestinian snipers, marksmen using high powered rifles at a distance. And there was one video where an Israeli, at least one Israeli soldier was clearly killed in, in such a an operation and others where they have fired these thermobaric grenades that, into buildings that destroy an entire room. So that's one thing. But now, I think you're being very unfair to the Israelis, John. And I, I need to push back a little bit, because you as said... As usual. Yeah, as usual, John. <laughs> you said that they've achieved nothing. Well, uh, Ophir Gendelman, the Arabic language spokesperson for... Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu put out a video I think also the Israeli Army put out the same video or a, or a, a version of it that that we 're going to take a look at now and they're claiming uh, that this is a, a tunnel near al Shifa hospital now remember of course that they claim that they uh, that, that they claimed that there was this james bond like multi level command bunker under al shifa which and they did this 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 uh Im- very imaginative am- animation of it uh at, at the end of october but let's look at what they say they found Are we uh, i think we're able to run that video might take a second here we go yeah so what we're seeing here i'm going to narrate it but tell okay, me if can I'm you ra- pause
6: just for one sec yeah before it goes down the hole oh, okay yeah so did you see the soldiers, if we could go back, Maybe if you we'll see go the back, soldiers, yeah. look to the left and watch the soldiers sitting there. So this is, tunnel, this is tunnel exploration for the Israelis. So there's four of them there playing on a joystick, Right. driving so this a is, drone.
3: So this is clearly a drone because people don't tend to fly like this. So this, we can see because we're coming in from above like this from the air that this is a drone. And so let's let the video run. And we're um, going to go down. We're going down this mysterious shaft. We don't know what it is. Of course, Israel say it's a resistance tunnel. But as we know, there's underground infrastructure in Gaza City, just like in any other uh, city. So we've seen uh, manholes and cable shafts and uh, fuel tanks. But this seems to be some kind of shaft going to the bottom. And then... So the drone gets down, it's got a light on it, and then something mysterious is going to happen in a few seconds, uh, when we, when we see, uh, the, the drone is looking around, it's flying around, it's looking up the shaft, you know, that seems like it's a spiral staircase or something, not exactly sure, uh, but let's, let's keep watching, and then yeah, it's looking around. So far, I don't see any, uh, I don't see Yahya or Muhammad Dhaif down there. I don't see uh, too much going on down there. But, he, you know, keep with it. The suspense is very... Oh, see what happened there? Uh, Tamara, can you go back a few seconds? <laughs> Just a few seconds. All right. Yeah, watch this. Observe. Observe. Oh, the video was edited. And then, let's let it run. What happens? Let's keep going. The video quality is now very different. It's sort of a little grainier. But look, suddenly this drone that we saw flying in has grown legs. Because you can clearly see that this is now a handheld camera. uh, And you can see that as the video runs, uh, it's moving from side to side as this drone magically grew legs and started walking through this tunnel so I think that and then I think it gets to the end of the tunnel and they call that a blast door, that's what the Israelis have put on there and a firing hole, that sounds very scary, we don't know what it is uh, and we don't know where this video is from what we can say is that it was that this video tweeted by Ofer Gendelman is two pieces of video that have been edited together. And in the first one, it's very clear that it's taken from a drone, which flies. And the second part is uh, something that has legs, whether it's the uh, Yeti that you have up in Canada. Is that where the Yeti lives? Or uh, uh, perhaps a dog that has been trained to walk on its hind legs or well, they
6: have, they have dogs. They, they do.
3: We, we did see the fake dog video a, a couple of years. The, right? also featured by Alfred Gendelman, but this didn't look like a dog. A dog seems to me like it would have moved more rapidly. But the point is this is, this is what they are putting out as their evidence. And, uh, so isn't that impressive to you, John? Doesn't that look like an underground Disney castle full of uh, Hamas commanders and rockets? Were you were you not? Yeah, I mean the thing that?
6: the thing that I notice is that that's not underneath Shifa. So they they made it sound like there was a command center, as if people were all going into Shifa down into this lair, and then all of a sudden they've cut out um, on the far corner of the campus um, something. We we know the Israelis say that there's 1300 tunnels if you dig down in various spots in downtown um, Gaza City you're presumably going to find a tunnel I think the thing that's interesting to me whether that video is fake or not um, the, the the things that stood out to me were that that's only 10 meters down and they lost control of whatever that was whether it was a robot the whether the drone had the ability to have legs that could move because they do have robots that go down into these tunnels but they do not have flying robots that that then sprout
3: legs and walk through that that they definitely don't have we we haven't seen those for sure we haven't seen those (laughs) Uh, but just to emphasize one point that you you've we we've made previously and you've emphasized which is that they do not go down the tunnels they, they have a standing order not to go down the tunnels, and we saw in the first part of that video the soldiers sitting there on what looked like a picnic mat posing for the...
6: Uh, the yeah, playing with a joystick, playing right? Playing
3: with a joystick. So that suggests to me that whatever that tunnel was with the uh, mysterious creature on legs walking through it, it, it was, from what we know, where they haven't even said they've gone down tunnels, like even the Israeli army as far as I, I've seen in their briefings, have never said, we sent people down a tunnel. Right. So this is, again, very... I mean, to me, based on what we know, and based on the fact that offer Gendelman has lied so often, is another fake. And, and as you say, even if this was a tunnel, it's not under the hospital, and it's not... A major command center at least you know anything and massive. they're not going down
6: into it so if that's where they're saying their people are okay so here's the things that I would see in that video we, we without saying it's fake the things that are in that video that are significant to me that would be significant to all the 1300 tunnels that span 500 kilometers apparently under Gaza is that door that they showed with that thick, heavy metal door with what they identified as a firing hole, that's very much true. There's doors all through the tunnel network that are so thick that you have to breach them with significant munitions. And they also have firing positions, which means like, so imagine this view, imagine this is you, and then you show up on the door, they pop open that firing hole and shoot you. or they rig the door so that when you try to blast it, it blasts backwards on top of you and buries you. So the Israelis have to first go down into the tunnel, which they're not doing. But then once they're down in the tunnel, they have this extraordinary task of being in that tiny space that's barely wide enough for one person. Um, And then they have to bring all their munitions down there and we can see with whatever robot that is that they've sent down there, at the end of this clip, you can see it drops off. The the footage drops off because they lose connection with that device. See, it it loses connection, which makes sense because they can't just send their drones uh, uh, an unlimited number of meters down. So when they see that firing hole, Palestinians can defend themselves through that hole And then the Israelis have to figure out how they're going to breach that door, that thick, heavy metal door. And they have to breach that door in such a way that they don't alert the fighters on the other side that they're coming, that they don't blow it up too much, that they blow up everything on top of them. They can't really leave the tunnel to blow up the door because once they do that, they've just cleared a path for the Palestinians to attack them and that each, um, I mean, we don't know, we haven't been in the tunnels, but um, you can imagine that they have those big, heavy doors uh, very often, that that's a very important part of the defense of the tunnels, is to have those thick doors.
3: Which would also uh, make it more complicated, even more complicated, if not impossible, uh, going back to a discussion we had a few weeks ago or what seems like a few weeks ago. It may have been last week, given how time stretches in this situation. But uh, about the idea of flooding or, or flooding the tunnels with gas, that, yeah. that it would be very hard, even if those doors aren't airtight, which I assume they're not, it would still be very hard to get um, significant volumes of
6: whatever it is you wanted to pump down there. Uh, and the through. tunnels were built with that in mind right so when they're building the tunnel they're imagining somebody coming down in the tunnel what happens when they get here what happens when they get to xyz place and they have preparations for each of those and so this idea that you're going to root out every fighter in hamas and this is what you're saying up on the above ground level where you're massacring tens of thousands of civilians to actually fight them on the underground level it's a very, very difficult task. Um, it's possible that that was a dog that we saw, but even sending dogs down, because the dogs need uh, air at some point going down, so then you have to put masks on the dogs and then they can't sniff as well, and so the dogs aren't even a good solution. All of your the drone dropping out, or whatever that was dropping out, gives you a clue about how difficult communications are, They can't use their normal radios. They can't use their normal uh, communication tools. But Kassam can because they have an internally wired system under there. So they can communicate through the tunnels in the tunnels and the Israelis can't. Then the Israelis have to get enough people down there and enough explosives down there to explode that thick, heavy door, but not collapse the tunnel on top of themselves or trip a booby trap um, which is another video that we saw last week. We saw the Israelis tripping a booby trap um, in Beit Hanun that killed four of them. Because the tunnel entrances can be booby trapped and then ultimately when you get down to the final boss, you know, like in the in the battle to 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 get Yahya Sinwar, um the The people in the tunnel have the capacity to just blow the tunnel up as a mass casualty situation and just take every Israeli with them and so there's a lot of very compelling military reasons why the Israelis are not going down into the tunnels and why because of that, there can be no military success that doesn't that goes beyond killing um, people and and evacuating a hospital and making people you know, like Ahmed and, and Yusuf decide whether they their sick uh, you know, family members should go on the ten kilometer um death march. Those are the only successes that Israel can come up with because the fighters are under the ground in these tunnels that have been built for this fight. That's what they're built for. And the Israelis are up on the top, sitting on the edge of the tunnel, flying I mean, I'll give them that. The the drone is impressive. You you could see the drone hit hit the walls and not drop. So it's some kind of uh, it's not a quadcopter. It's not your regular drone or it would have crashed. So they have fancy tools. But once it gets to 10 meters, they lost communication with that. And the Israelis themselves say the tunnels are 65 meters deep. And so it's just, it's like, it's not even close. It's not even like they're almost there. And that's why Ofer Gendelman putting out that video of the dog down there. Like, it's just such a joke when you saw that fake video from a couple weeks ago. And then you compare it to those soldiers, you know, sitting in a circle. Yeah, looking like they're on a picnic mat. But they also had four guys pointing their guns around to make sure that they weren't ambushed because it's, it's resource intensive to carry out these operations around the tunnel. You have to bring troops in. You have to bring explosives in.
3: Well, it seems that they feel pretty safe around El Shifa Hospital because the only people uh, shooting guns around the hospital are the Israeli soldiers themselves. But, John, can we shift to uh, another uh, uh, there's a couple of other things I want to ask you about or, or talk to talk to you about that go back to October 7th. Now, we've talked about October 7th over the weeks. The, of course, in the U.S. and Western media and, in, of course, Israeli propaganda, they emphasize the atrocity propaganda. They don't talk about the military achievement of, of, of the resistance, which overwhelmed the Gaza division Took several of its bases and destroyed them, captured and killed Israeli soldiers, including senior officers, and so on. And also, the, the the drone footage that Hamas published at the time showed them using drones to destroy, to drop bombs on sophisticated Israeli surveillance equipment, on automated machine gun nests, and uh, and uh, and other things, destroying tanks, dropping. Uh, bombs on tanks. And I'm bringing that up because that, I don't know if it was ever really shown in Western media, but it it is, uh, there is this effort to overwhelm us with this atrocity propaganda about that Hamas went out to deliberately butcher as many uh, innocent Israelis as they could. And we were the first English language publication at the electronic intifada to start, uh, Kind of systematically uh, taking that fake narrative apart. I'm going to call it a fake narrative because that was not the nature of the Hamas operation. It was a military operation, in which certainly civilians were killed. That was the first big story we did on uh, now uh, just over a month ago. Uh, but let's start, let's come let's look at a couple of very recent stories just from the last few days. The first one we're going to look at. Um, is just from Friday. And there's a little video clip uh, in that story, Tamara, uh, that let's try to play. Just the clip uh, that is embedded in that um, story of Mark Regev, who is the Israeli, one of the most well-known Israeli government spokespersons. And Mark Regev was speaking to Mehdi Hassan on... MSNBC it was a long interview of about 30 minutes I watched the whole thing but that just play that clip in the um,
1: uh, in the that's in the embedded tweet welcome back and uh, that was a panel discussion from day 45 from Electronic Entifada that's going to conclude our program for today you'd like to have access to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for today, Wednesday, uh, November the 22nd, 2023. Just go uh, to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And um, if you'd like to have access to the Pan-African Newswire, All you need to do is go uh, to our website at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, we're going to close out our program uh, today. And, of course, uh, all you need to do is go uh, to uh, the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash panafricanjournal to hear this program again and share it with other potential listeners. We're going to close out with the music of uh, Dinah Washington from the album entitled Dinah Jams. This is Abayomi Way signing off and have a beautiful week.
7: I am lonely. The sky is blue. The night is cold. The moon is new. But love is old. And while I'm waiting here, this heart of mine is singing, lover, lover, come back to me.